Well, go ahead and, and uh, grab your seat. We're going to get uh, going into the, with the message this morning. Uh, but what a great way to start the service. And so uh, thankful for what God's done in your life, Kyla, and what you've decided to do and celebrating that today. So anyways, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box, and it's my joy to be the lead pastor here at Midtown Church. And uh, I'm so glad that you're here with us, especially if you're visiting with us. Hope you feel welcomed and, and uh, encouraged in your uh, walk with Christ or exploring Christianity today. Um, so let me, uh, let me make a quick family announcement. Something exciting happened over the weekend. We had a uh, couple get engaged. So uh, Justin Lupita, you want to stand up? Justin and Lupita, where are they? They're in here somewhere. There we go. All right. There we go. So excited. Congrats, guys. Woohoo! All right. So uh, get in. Now get... <laughs> Getting into the message. Let me begin by asking you one of those uh, kind of corny uh, icebreaker questions that you may have been asked before. But the question being, if you could share a meal with anyone in history, who would you choose? And yet, that's the church answer. Way to go, Rob. <laughs> Very good. Of course, Jesus is the uh, church answer, and, uh, but it, it might be your actual answer. I mean, Jesus is, you know, widely regarded as the most influential, influential person who has uh, ever lived. And so uh, you might, even outside of church, have said, you know, if I really think about it, I, I wouldn't mind grabbing a, a meal with Jesus. And if that's what you would decide, then I would say you would have made a, a good choice uh, for many reasons. But one of them being that uh, Jesus loved eating meals with people. Did you, did you know that about him? He loved eating meals with people. In fact, um, try to follow me here real quick, but like Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself was uh, by calling himself the, the son of man. And that, that title was taken from Daniel chapter 7. It was reference to how the son of man would come before God the Father and be, be uh, given all sovereign power over all the nations and, and be glorified among the nations. And so Jesus would refer to himself as the son of man back to Daniel 7. And in the gospel accounts, the stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's three times where Jesus begins a sentence, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man came. Now, how do you think that he finished those sentences? The Son of Man came. I mean, you could think, okay, the Son of Man came to uh, die on the cross and rise again, or the Son of Man came to pay for our sins. And those, those would be great guesses. But here's what it, what he actually, how he actually finished those statements. The first was found in Mark 10, verse 45. He says this, the Son of Man came... Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, that makes sense. Famous verse. Next one is in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He says this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, again, statement of purpose. But the third one is really interesting. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, he says this, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Isn't that interesting? Son of Man came eating and drinking. Uh, Tim Chester, a pastor and author, uh, notes, uh, uh, makes, makes an observation about these three statements. And he says this. He says, the first two are statements of purpose or mission. Why did Jesus come? Well, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom and to seek and save the lost. But the third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? Well, he came eating and drinking. <laughs> and let me add, he came eating and drinking a lot. 
I mean, if you keep going in this verse, here's what it says. It says, uh, the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, and he's referring to the religious leaders of the day, that's the you, you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So (laughs) according to the religious authorities, Jesus ate too much, he drank too much, and he did it with the wrong types of people. But, guys, that's why eating and drinking was key to the method of how he came or what he came for. You see, uh, they, were the, they were the pivotal way that Jesus extended grace and built community. For Jesus' apparent excess of food and his true excess of grace were linked. They were tied together. And so that's why he came eating and drinking. And I don't know about you guys, but like, I love that. I love that that's what, how Jesus was described. And you know, whether you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, or whether you're just exploring Christianity, I think that that description, I think across the table would say, hey, at least that's intriguing, if not attractive. And that that's what, how Jesus would say, hey, man, this is what the Son of Man's come to do. So back to the original question. If you were to choose anyone back in history to have a meal with, if you were to choose Jesus, you would probably be in luck because uh, he, he ate with a lot of people. He, he ate a lot. And so his chance he would be able to fit you in. And I think he would make a great dinner companion. And so, uh, but here's, here's the interesting thing. And the thing I want us to think about this morning is, is this. Um, whether you know it or not, one of the main reasons that would cause you to even consider picking Jesus to be the person to have a meal with is actually due to something that Jesus communicated during a meal with his closest friends. Like, the only reason that he'd be on our radar that 2,000 years later, we're still thinking about Jesus and he's still having the influence that he's having is because of something. It's primary due to something that he communicated over a meal to his closest friends. And I say that because, like, unlike the other leaders of the major, other major world religions, like, unlike Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or Moses, Jesus died when he was relatively young. And he died uh, stripped naked, uh, hanging on a cross, in agony, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in light of that, think, why would anybody look to him and say, yeah, that's whose shoes I would like to walk in. That's the one that I would like to influence me. He's my spiritual leader. He's the one I want to be like. I mean, why would anyone say that? Well, the answer is that people have been drawn to Jesus and had their lives changed by him as they have grasped the meaning of Jesus' death. And as we're going to see this morning, the way that he communicated the meaning and purpose of his death was not only during a meal, but it was actually through a meal. It's the most famous meal, the most meaningful meal, the the most celebrated meal in all of history. It's the the Lord's Supper, or also known as the, the Last Supper. So, as we kick off this new series, uh, Meals with Jesus, and we're going to, and really fittingly with uh, 
Good Friday and Easter in front of us this week, we're going to um, take time to study what Jesus communicates through the Last Supper. Um, Specifically, we're going to ask the question, hey, what did Jesus do during his Last Supper to explain the meaning of his death and how what uh, what he communicated uh, in that meal, how could that transform our lives? So that's where we're going to go this morning. So if you will, open up to Mark chapter 14 or go there on your phone or whatever. Uh, Mark chapter 14, we're going to be verses 22 uh, through 25 this morning. And uh, before I read it, I, I want to set the stage a little bit for us, specifically kind of help us grasp the occasion of this meal. And so, uh, you know, because the occasion of the meal is highly significant for two reasons. First of all, it was highly significant because it took place the night before Jesus was crucified. So you need to know about, about this meal that we're going to look in that Jesus is having with this verse. Is this taking place the night before he's going to be crucified? The second reason the occasion of this meal is highly significant is because it took place on the night that the, the Jews celebrated the Passover meal, the annual once-a-year celebration of the Passover meal. That was this night. So there's two significant occasions that happened with this meal. Um, and so what we have is, and you'll see if you were reading earlier in Mark 14, that Jesus gathers his disciples in the, in the upper room, and he gets his, you know, his closest friends together. And he uh, chooses uh, this night, the night before his death, and the night of the Passover meal, to communicate to his disciples, the meaning and purpose of his death. And the way that he communicates that, friends, was incredibly shocking to his disciples. I mean, extremely shocking to them. But unfortunately, because uh, we are not first century Jews, a lot of this is going to go over our head. As 21st century Americans, like we don't fully understand why what Jesus said in this meal was so incredibly shocking to them. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to explain that to us this morning. Because it's important that we grasp that to be able to fully get and understand the meaning of Jesus' death and see how it can really transform our lives. So let me read this and then I'll try to unpack why it was so shocking for his disciples. Here's what he says, starting in verse 22. It says, while they were eating, and that's while they were eating the Passover meal together. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Okay. Now, for many of us, this is, these are very familiar words, but I tell you, when Jesus said this on that night to his disciples, their jaws would have hit the floor. I mean, this was extremely shocking to them. I mean, they would have, like, turned to each other and said, like, what, wait, what did he just do? What did, what did he just say? And, like, here's why. Because by saying these words, Jesus had just broken over a thousand years of tradition by completely rewriting the meaning and the order of the Passover meal. But since, again, since most of us are unfamiliar with the Passover meal, this is is lost on us when we read this. So to help you understand why this was so radical and why it was so significant and how it explains the meaning of Jesus' death, we need to better understand the order, right, 
and the, and the meaning of the Passover meal. So, so try to stay with me. It's going to get a little technical, but I think that it's going to prove to be helpful. So try to, try to follow me here. Let's talk about the, the meaning of the meal, the meaning of the Passover meal. See, for ancient and present-day Jews, the, the Passover meal is an annual meal that commemorates a defining moment in Israel's history, that moment being the moment when God freed them from slavery. It was eaten to remember how back in the day the Jewish people were horrifically enslaved by the Egyptians and to help them remember how, and God, how God in his you know, great grace uh, freed them from that slavery. Um, and so every year from that point on, when God had freed them from slavery, every year from that point on, the, the, God's people, the Israelites, they would celebrate the Passover every year. Um, and now there was a real, like not only did they have the dinner, but there was a form to how this dinner uh, went, went, right? And there's different elements, and there was a different, like there was a, one thing came after another, always, and it was just very traditional setup. For example, um, there was four cups of wine. And so, uh, you know, here you go. We can pass this out later. Um, <laughs> not really. But uh, there's just these four, four cups of wine, okay? Uh, each one had a specific um, meaning. Um, and so the meaning was take, taken from four promises found in Exodus uh, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is what Exodus 6, 6 through 7 says. It says, Therefore say to the Israelites, this is God speaking, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That's promise number one. I will, I will free you from being slaves to them. That's promise two. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. So I'll redeem you by my power. That's promise three. And then I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. That's promise four. And look to the future of a future deep, rich communion with, with God. And so each cup would represent one of those promises. And in the form of this Passover meal, the presider over the meal would stand up at the, to kick it off, and they, he'd hold up one of the glasses, and he would say, hey, th this cup, this, this reminds us of how God promised to free us from the Egyptians. And then he would drink it, bless it, drink it, and pass it around. They would all drink it. Then they'd come to the second cup and say, okay, this cup reminds us of how God promised to free us from slavery. Bless it and pass it around and they would drink it. And then, in the, following the traditional Passover meal, they would start eating the food. And in all of the you know, traditional meals, there was at least three elements. There was the bread and there were the bitter herbs and there was the lamb. Okay? And so they would begin eating and some, at some point of time during the meal, usually near the end of the meal, the presider over the Passover meal would stand up once again and he would hold up the bread and he would break it and he would explain what it stood for. And he would say that this is the uh, bread stood for the, the, the bread of our affliction how uh, representing how the, 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 our ancestors were afflicted in slavery before God freed them. And they would say, okay, we remember the bread of our affliction, and they would pass it out. That's what they would do for a thousand years, up until this night. Because on this night, 
Jesus, <laughs> he changes it all up. You see, verse 22 picks up at this point, at the point of the bread. That they had apparently already drank the first two cups. And they were already eating, verse 22 says, as they were eating. Right, And so they were eating, but when, when it, the time came, as Jesus, the presider over this Passover meal, to stand up and to explain the elements of what they were eating, he doesn't pick up the bread and say, hey, this bread is the bread of our affliction, to remind us of our ancestors and what they went through in slavery. No, he picks it up, and he breaks it. And he says, I'm making a mess. He's... He didn't say, I'm making a mess. He said, this is my body. He said, this is my body. And in saying that, friends, do you get it in the context? He is not saying, this bread for a thousand years has represented our affliction, our people's affliction. He says, no, no, no. This bread now, at this point and from this point on, this bread represents my affliction. This bread represents how I am going to be broken. This bread now represents what I am going to go through in order for God's people to be freed. Not just from slavery to people, as bad as that is, but slavery from sin itself. And in saying this, friends, like, this is why it was so shocking to the disciples. Because Jesus, he, he just completely rewrote the meaning of the Passover bread. Of course, when he's speaking of how his body would be broken, he's alluding to what he knows is going to happen the next day. He knows he's about to be beaten, flogged. He knows the crown of thorns are about to be put on his head. He knows that he is about to have nails driven through his wrists and his feet. He knows he's about to be crucified, and he says, I am going to be broken. This is my body. It's my affliction to free you. And as wild as that is, to redefine that one element of Passover meal, Jesus wasn't done. <laughs> he keeps going. So for the traditional meal, the next thing the presire would bless would be the bitter herbs, but Jesus doesn't, he doesn't mention the herbs at all. The herbs represented Israel's slavery, but he, he doesn't even go there. And then the next thing that we see him, uh, that, that the normal traditional Passover meal the presider would do is that he would explain the meaning of the lamb. And the reason that the lamb was the main course and like the best part of the whole meal is because the lamb was the central figure of the actual Passover so the lamb is the main course of the Passover meal because it was the central figure of the actual Passover, what the Passover meal commemorated. And for those of you who are not, fam are not familiar, you need to understand this part, again, to understand the meaning of Jesus' death. For Exodus you know, 11, 12, 13, I don't have time to re read it all for you, but you go study that this week. That'll be a great, great thing to do. But in those chapters, what you see is that as a result of the Israelite captivity, as a result of the Israelites being enslaved by the Egyptians and by Pharaoh and his tyranny and how he just, like, I mean, just ruthless injustice, God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to judge Egypt. And he says, in, in one night, 
one specific night, I'm going to let my justice, my judgment fall completely on all who are in Egypt. And he says up to that point, you know, God had been doing, if you're familiar with it, all up to that point had been the first nine plagues of the ten plagues. And then God had been doing to try to get Pharaoh to loosen his grips on God's people, the whole let my people go thing. And, but it was all to no avail up to that point, and the Pharaoh had not allowed Israel to go yet. And so God says, okay, this is it. The tenth plague is going to be the most severe. It's going to be the plague of death. And I'm going to send the angel of death to go and, and to take the life of the firstborn child in every home in Egypt. Now, Moses, when hearing that, was thinking, okay, wait, wait when you say every home, you, you, you mean like all the Egyptians' homes, right? Like, I mean, not the Israelites. We're the ones enslaved. We're just Egyptians. But God is very clear. He's, it's, no, it, it's actually every home, and regardless of, of race, uh, Egyptian or Israelite. Every home. And God makes it clear that the reason why is because this judgment, when God in this one night would actually like give us a preview of judgment day, he says this judgment is not against one sin, but it's against sin itself. And as the Bible clearly teaches, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all of us, that all of mankind, due to our own sin and self-centeredness, have done something, yes, maybe to various degrees, but we've done something to add to the brokenness of this world and the destruction of the shalom that God created us to enjoy with him and with one another. And as a result, we're all stand, we all stand guilty. And so when God says, okay, I'm coming to judge this night, the judgment will fall on everybody. But then he does tell Moses, but I will provide a way out. And that's where the lamb comes in. He says, tell the Israelites to go kill a lamb. To cook it for dinner that night. And to spread its blood, to paint its blood on the doorposts. And if a family were to take shelter under the blood of the lamb... That night, then when the angel of death passes over the home, no one will be touched. Hence the, the name Passover. And so the Israelites did that. They killed the lamb. They ate it. They painted the blood on the doorpost. And for all that did, the angel of death passed over and they were covered by the blood of the lamb. Now, that's a, that's a pretty dramatic story, right? <laughs> and you think, okay, well, like, why, why in the world? Uh, you know, well, let me just back up. Perhaps that raises a lot of questions for you. <laughs> if, if so, that's great. Uh, we love to talk about those kind of questions, and so let's, let's do that. Um, but perhaps one of those questions that it might raise for you is, um, why would the blood of a lamb save anyone from judgment, Right? I mean, why would, why would the blood of a woolly little, <laughs> woolly little sweet little lamb save a, a whole household from the judgment against sin? And that, that doesn't make any sense. And, and you would be right. It, it doesn't actually make <laughs> any sense. A lamb, a lamb, the death of a lamb doesn't save people from sin. 
Yes, that's what makes this Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with his friends so meaningful and powerful. Because on this night, when Jesus gets up to bless the food, he breaks the bread and he redefines it as his body. And then he skips over the bitter herbs. And then he, as you read, as we just read, he doesn't mention the lamb at all. I mean, the central figure of the Passover story and the central course of the Passover meal. And there's no mention of the lamb in any of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no one mentions the lamb. And many people believe the reason that the lamb is not mentioned is because there was no lamb at their Passover table. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that Jesus doesn't mention the lamb. So whether it wasn't there or Jesus just decides not to mention it, either way, that should cause us to ask the question, why in the world would Jesus not even mention or perhaps not even have the lamb at the table when they're celebrating Passover? Perhaps many of y'all could see where I'm going here. It's because this meal, this Passover meal, was all about the lamb that was presiding over the table, not the lamb that was either on or missing from the table. See, for those who are familiar, like when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, what, what does he say? He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why in the world would John the Baptist call Jesus a lamb? I and mean, it's just weird, right? I mean, if you're familiar with the story, then yeah, that's what he said. But if you think about it, it's like, okay, yeah, that's weird. You know, I don't call people lambs that often. I mean, why, why would John the Baptist do that when he sees Jesus the first time? Well, the reason that John the Baptist does that is because he knew what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. See, The prophet Isaiah, prophesying 600 years before the coming of Jesus, but speaking of the coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant, he describes him as a lamb. In fact, let me read it for you. He says this. He, talking about the the Messiah, talking about eventually Jesus, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the transgressions of us all. And so John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, this, this is who Isaiah was talking about. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, presiding over the Passover meal, on the night that he's going, before he's going to be crucified. Doesn't mention the lamb, but breaking with tradition, he skips straight to the third cup. Now, the third cup, if you remember the promises I was re- saying earlier in Exodus 6, 6-7, the third cup traditionally represented God's promise to redeem his power, his people, not by his power, or I'm sorry, Traditional, the promise to redeem his people, not by their power, but by his power. Remember, it's the outstretched arm of the Lord. That's how they were going to be saved. So fittingly, with, with the third cup, Jesus raises it 
having not mentioned the herbs or the lamb, and just says, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And again, he, he redefines what the cup is. Now, it fits with what they always said. We were going to remember that God saved us not by our power, but by his power. But here Jesus says, here's how he's saving us. This is how God is saving you. This is how I am saving you. Not by your power, but by my power. It's going to be through my blood poured out for you. That's what's going to form this new covenant, this new relationship in which this relationship is based not on what we do for God, how well we live, how we measure up the good things that we do or the bad things we don't do. It's not based on that. It's based on what I have done for you. This covenant with God, completely based on what God does for us, not what we do for him. He says, this is how God will save you by his power, not by your power. It's by my blood being poured out for you. And when he's saying that, he is, Jesus himself, is alluding to what Isaiah had said in Isaiah 53. I read it earlier where it says, he, Isaiah says, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus says, hey, this is my blood poured out for you. He's saying, I'm, I'm the lamb of God. I'm the lamb who would be slaughtered so that your transgressions would fall on me. And you could be set free. That God could save you by his power, not by your own. Guys, again, we have to remember that to explain the meaning of his death, Jesus didn't just choose a random night to have a lecture, to call his friends together and say, okay, hey, something big is about to happen. In a little while, I'm going to die here. Let me tell you why. Now, he specifically chose this night, this occasion. Because it was through this meal, through the meal, not just over the meal, but through the meal, that Jesus would know that he could most clearly and most powerfully communicate the meaning and the purpose of his death. That meaning being that Jesus died as your substitutionary sacrifice to set you free from your sins. Jesus died as your substitutionary sacrifice to set you free from your sins. And he couldn't have communicated that more powerfully than through the Passover meal. Because just as the lamb had been the substitute for the people of God, that the angel of death would pass over them, Jesus says, hey, you know, the reason that they would be saved from a lamb from a little woolly lamb, is because it's not because of that lamb. No, it's because of what that lamb pointed to. See, that lamb and all the other lambs had always, that had been sacrificed, had always been pointing to me, the lamb of God, and how I will be sacrificed, how my blood will be poured out, and how if you take shelter under my blood, then you will be saved from the judgment of God. 
Jesus says, that's the meaning of my death. I'm your substitutionary sacrifice. I don't know about you, but like that has been, that has just been messing me up this week as I thought thought about that. And as I look forward to celebrating Good Friday this week and Easter Sunday and Jesus' resurrection on Sunday, I just think, man, this this is powerful. Like, Jesus, you are amazing. And also, just as a sign of, like, how all of Scripture points together and points to him. I mean, I just love all of that. Now, for some of you, though, I, I understand, like, this would raise some questions for you. And, and really, in our, in our culture, one of the most, like, one of the things that this raises for us is it, it, it causes people who, especially unfamiliar to the, to the Bible story or to Christianity, they would say, okay, like, why, that, that's, that's um, like, you know, that's interesting, but like, it's also off-putting. Because why, why, would, why would God require all the blood and gore? I mean, why was it necessary? I mean, I mean, if God wants to love us, and if he, he wants to save us, why, he's God. Why can't he just love us and, and save us? And why is it necessary that there would be a sacrifice, a, a substitutionary atonement, a, a substitute in our place? Why, it just feels like, eh. <laughs> you know? And there's many people in our culture that feel that way, and perhaps many in this room. And like, I, get, I get the idea behind that question. I really do. But to, to answer that, just to speak to that for a second, I, I want to just quote one of my heroes of faith, uh, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, pastor in, in New York City. He, he talks uh, to those types of questions in one of his books, and here's what he says. He says, whether we realize it or not, all real uh, life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. That all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. He says, you have never loved a broken person, a wounded person, a hurting person, a person in trouble, except through substitutionary sacrifice. See, if you love a nice person, a person whose life is all pulled together and everything is fine and they don't need any changes, it costs you nothing. And it would be wonderful and fun to have friends like that. There are probably four or five people like that in your city, and you should try to find them and become their friend. I love that. But if you ever try to love someone who has needs, who is in any way broken, who has trouble or is in trouble or is emotionally wounded, it is going to cost you. And you can't love them and bring them up without you going down to some degree. You can't lovingly help them without some aspect of their troubles or problems transferring to you to some degree. You see, because all real life changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Let that sink in for a minute. Just think about this. Like, all of us have had friends and probably are this person at some point in time in life. But where you have a, you have a friend who has, it's just, uh, is emotionally unhealthy. And they, when you, 
Like when you see them coming your way, you're tempted to try to head the other way. <laughs> or when they call you, you're tempted to just let it go to voicemail or not to respond to their text till after the time they wanted to hang out with you has passed, right? Because why? Because hanging out with emotionally unhealthy people is what? It's taxing. It's, it's draining. You recognize that. We all recognize that. But here, to help someone become emotionally healthy, the only way that will really get them there is if there's people in their lives who will really love them, that will be there for them and care for them, support them and listen to them and challenge them and help them. But in order for them to become emotionally healthy, it's going to drain something from you to some degree. To fill them up, it's going to take something from you to some degree. Because that's substitutionary sacrifice. See, the reason that Jesus went to the cross is not because we have a bloodthirsty God. It's because on the cross you have God himself, God the Son, coming to love us. But the only way that you love a guilty person, a broken person, a sinful person, and really love them to change them is you have to love them substitutionally. And he took our punishment upon himself. He got what we deserved. Our sin fell upon him. Our guilt fell upon him. Our brokenness fell upon him. He took it upon himself so that we could be forgiven. So his righteousness could fall upon us. So that we could, he was laid low so we could be lifted to the heavens. He was forsaken by God on the cross so that we could be welcomed in for all eternity with our God. Because that's the meaning of Jesus' death. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to end there, but I want to just say one more thing. Because there's one more aspect of this meal, and that's the, what I would call it the promise of the meal. And the promise of the meal it's found in the last thing that Jesus says here in verse 25. See, because he's not done breaking from the traditional Passover meal, even after all that. See, after taking the third cup, the normal conclusion of the meal would be to drink the fourth and final cup. And that cup in the Exodus chapter 6 promise represented God's future promise of rich communion between him and his people. But Jesus doesn't drink that cup. Instead, after drinking the third cup, he says this. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You guys, do you hear the promise that he's making there? Jesus is promising through this meal that as a result of his substitutionary death, there will be a day when we will share another meal with him. That in many ways you can say the Passover meal or the Lord's Supper, this meal that Jesus is having and explaining how it, what it applies to his death so that we would be set free from our sin. All this meal is doing is making a way for us to have another meal with God. It's a meal for a meal. And Jesus is promising, 
I am going to be your substitute so that one day we will drink this again. Revelation 19, we're told that there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all who have placed their faith alone in Christ's death as, his, as, your, as trusting in him to be your substitute, you take shelter under his blood, you will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there at that time, Jesus will hold up the fourth cup. And he will say, just as I promised, here we are. Let us drink and celebrate the rich communion that the people of God and God himself can share together. And without a doubt, we will say the words of Revelation 5 when we will say, hold up our cups and toast him. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and strength and honor and glory and praise because it will be because of him that we will be there. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because isn't that awesome? That's what God has done for you. Because he loves you more than you know. You matter to him more than you realize. So you think, okay, what do I do with all this? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion together, right? So we're going to do that here, but also want to invite you on Friday night, on Good Friday, come to my house. It's going to be crazy. There's a lot of people there. We're going to have a meal there. And at that meal, we're going to actually have a meal, and we're going to take communion through the meal. So like, not just the little, you know, little crackers. We'll have to actually do a meal, and we're going to celebrate this, and we're going to look forward to celebrating the resurrection. That's what we do. What are you, what are you going to do with this? Here's the three things I want to encourage you to do. One, if you have never believed this, my encouragement to you is to receive it today. And just like a great meal that's cooked for you and spread before you, you can't enjoy the meal until you actually take it. Well, guys, this is the meal that's offered to you today. Jesus is saying, I have died for you. I'm your substitute. Will you, by faith, will you trust me? And by simple trust in him, by saying to him, I trust that you are my substitute and you have reconciled me to God. You freed me from my sin. At that moment, you become his child. Saved from your sin, set free. If you've never believed that, would you receive that today? That's my encouragement to you. You can do that even now. Just tell God, I believe. For those of you who have already made that decision and trusted God, then here's what I want to encourage you to do. This week, reflect on this. Starting now with taking communion. And then Friends, rejoice. Like, rejoice. This is true. This is what God, this is God's posture towards you. This is what God has done for you. He loves you this much. May it lift us all to the heavens. We're going to take communion and we're going to begin by rejoicing, singing his praises for what he has done. Let me pray. And the tables are open to you for all who place their faith in Christ. Tables up for you in the front or in the back. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, then I encourage you, do that right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are awesome. Jesus, that you would be our substitute. We do not deserve. We do not deserve. But that you would willingly lay down your life for us, your life for ours, your body broken, your blood spilled, so that we could be brought in to rich communion with you, God, and look forward to sharing this meal with you 
in your kingdom. God, you are so good. I pray for anyone here that's trying to decide if they believe this or not, will you give, would you give them faith? Will they trust you now? For all of us who do believe this, God, may it come home to our hearts as we take communion, as we sing this, uh, the rest of the service, and Lord, as we, as we reflect on your death, Jesus, and your resurrection this week. We love you, God. Thank you for how you've loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.